And now, live from Level 5 Productions on the island of Milleronia, it's The Larry Miller Show! Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who loves Gene Harlow. Hi, folks, and welcome back to The Larry Miller Show. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And boy, oh boy, I'm so glad to be on the air today with you. It's true, I'm, I'm glad every time I'm on the air with you, and that's no kidding around. I I love this format, this structure. I love the whole concept of making your own show, calling it a, a podcast or just your own show. After all, that's why we, we chose The Larry Miller Show. That's me and Colonel Jeff, and uh, we're both happy. And yes, it's it's that music. Now, we're not on Milleronia today because I came back to the mainland to, well, to have Mother's Day uh, with... My wife and mother of my boys, our children, and uh, actually, I'll tell you a little bit about that. But that's why we're not on Milleronia, and it's a gorgeous day here in Southern California. It's warm, but not well, not hot, not crazy hot, not where you're crawling along like a guy in the desert. So it's a it's a beautiful day here. And yes, I'm happy about that. And yes, the music, again, uh, makes me happy every time Colonel Jeff plays it. And of course, that's the Roger Moore Orchestra and the Gene Harlow Dancers featuring boy tenor Brad Simpson asking the musical question, If I report the theft of a toilet, does that make me a stool pigeon? Yes, Brad. Yes, it does. You are an official stool pigeon. By the way... I can't, I don't know how many toilets are stolen. I don't know how high on the list that item is of, well, stolen goods. You know, is is there a lot of demand out there for what? Yes, you and I want a toilet. We need a toilet. I'm glad they've been invented. And uh, after all, you know, they had outhouses for a long time all over the world, as you know. Would that have been fun? And I know really uh, if you were wealthy or, uh, say, the king of something or other in the middle of the night and you had to, well, you had to tinkle or something, that uh, I like the addition of or something there. You know what? If you, if you, if you, if you had to piddle, you could go. Uh, they had, well, things that, they, uh, that you, you do that in, don't they? What was it called? Why can't I? A pan, a sort of a. Oh, chamber pot, says Colonel Jeff. He's right. Yeah, that's kind of a nicer way of saying it, isn't it? Kind of. <laughs> Not especially really, but yes, it is. I'm glad you knew that. So in any case, though, I'm glad. Uh, by the way, my grandmother, my mother's mother, used to say, call, and they had an outhouse growing up and... Uh, and because that, that's what people did. They were not only not ashamed of it, they loved it because you need one. And uh, whenever she got up to uh, to do that, to the go to go to the outhouse, and someone said to her in the family, uh, where are you going, Ma? And she would always say, her answer was always, Vida Kaiser Gates alone. Which, <laughs> which is, I just get a kick out of that. That's that's Yiddish for where the Kaiser goes alone. So even the Kaiser, she was very witty, and even the Kaiser, as lofty as he was in those days in that land, that where so where is she going? Where even the Kaiser has to go alone. Ultimately, he's there alone too. And uh, at any rate, so uh, so yes, Brad. Uh, yes, it does make you a stool pigeon. I don't know what the demand is for toilets out there. I can't imagine how annoyed two police detectives would be getting assigned to come to your house and interview you to find the toilet and then having to track down the thief to his apartment and get your toilet. But you want the toilet and you need the toilet. 
That's your toilet. It's not his. And uh, I think he'll be better off with one of those seatless prison toilets. Anyway, you know, that uh, sure, it's in front of someone else. But, uh, well, he's seen everything anyway. So, uh, sure, you don't. You could take a crossword puzzle the three feet over to the to the little metal toilet there, but you probably don't need one. And you probably don't want to distract your attention that much once your pants are down. But uh, in any case, a seatless prison toilet would be good for him. Nobody steals those, I bet. Nobody, there's no great racket for those. And but yes, and it finally dawned on me about a minute after thinking of a good answer for you that... I didn't even know stool pigeon has the word stool right in it. And toilets, well, have stool in them half the time. So that maybe more than half, maybe less. I don't know you, but I don't know your habits. But uh, heck of a question, Brad. Good for you. If I report the theft of a toilet, does that make me a stool pigeon? Yes, it does. And uh, you know what, by the way, I mentioned uh, Roger Moore there. God bless him, because he just passed away just a couple of days ago. And uh, Roger Moore from starring in The Saint. I hope many of you know that. And that was before, of course, he did oh, so much other work in movies and television. Uh, but then he... Became uh, 007. He became the next James Bond after Sean Connery. Now, uh, true for a lot of you fans, you know that uh, George Lazenby did one James Bond movie as 007. And uh, he had one, and I guess maybe it did did well or not so well or whatever it was. And I I always felt bad for him because, boy, that's a tough thing to do. It's like following Joe DiMaggio in center field. You know, come on, you know. But uh, George did one, and then Roger Moore came in, and I read it in an article by Kyle Smith, an article he he called Roger Moore is the best Bond. And uh, that that got my attention because I, I, I adore Roger Moore. I love the guy, and I have a lot of respect for him. But I wouldn't call him the best Bond, necessarily. I, I'm i a little too rigid on that, maybe. But uh, I wanted to see what Kyle thought, because, yes, I still think that, well, Sean Connery is the best Bond. I know that's a little, well, it may be a little long in the tooth for some of you. Maybe you say, well, I like Roger Moore. Well, and Pierce Brosnan did a few, right? And he's always good. He's a terrific actor, especially in that new show of his son, and including Daniel Craig, who is a terrific actor. He's wonderful. And uh, he's made some uh, great Bond movies. Uh, but you know what? Yeah, it's true. I'd rather wear a suit and a tie and a hat to a baseball game in 1934. And I think I'd rather see Sean Connery in any of the ones he made. Yes, it's true, as Kyle wrote in his article, that... Uh, Yes, uh, the uh, Sean Connery Bond was uh, a little tougher, or a lot tougher, and uh, he was uh, blunt and violent and sarcastic and big shoulders. And, uh, well, I don't know about you, he was my kind of Bond, my kind of James Bond. And, uh, you know, the guy, He could knock those jokes off just right. I still remember, I just saw Goldfinger again just a few weeks ago. And uh, in Goldfinger, well, you know, he has a great... An opening scene is after he vanquishes a bunch of bad guys and wins a whole mission, you know, the way a lot of the uh, Bond movies used to open where they have a big big mission they're on. And uh, after doing that, he said, well, yes, I'll be right with you. I still have just something else to do. And he goes... There was a beautiful young woman waiting for him in her apartment so that they could spend some time together. It was a good idea for her because he was, for crying out loud, he's James Bond. And it was a good idea for him, too, because, well, she's, uh, she's a bit of all right. And uh, he, he goes in there, and she's, she just got out of the bathtub, and she has a towel around her, and she's naked underneath that. 
And uh, is that good enough for you, by the way? Because <laughs> that certainly, that was good enough for me. But as he's kissing her, he sees in her eyes, she opened her eyes, and in the reflection of her eyes, the iris there, uh, he sees a guy sneaking in with a gun. And, well, you know, even if you want to, you may want to kiss her a lot more, but that's probably not a good time to do it. So he he throws her aside and she fights him, you know, back and, you know, he, he knocks her down and then he he fights this guy and the guy, well, he beats the guy. He beats the guy up and throws him into the bathtub. He takes knocks his gun out of his hands and throws him into the full bathtub. And as the guy, start, you know, starts to try and, you know, get out of the tub and he's kind of kicking his legs and Bond looks up, sees, and the fan was going. The uh, the woman had the fan going, the electric fan. So he takes that fan and knocks it into the bathtub that the guy is still in. And boy, there's a, you know, that just, uh, he electrocutes him. By the way, in good old-fashioned Bond way to me, they didn't have special effects thrown in for that. They didn't have to show... Every light on the block go out. You know, you just knew, oh, right, he could electrocute the, the bad guy, which he does. And as the guy, and as the guy, well, you know, just collapses back into the water, dead, Bond says, shocking. And just in that great Sean Connery way of just slicing it off there, he doesn't put a big light on it, he just uh, says, uh, shocking. And uh, then the woman he knocked down, who's naked with the towel around her, she gets up and uh, to fight him also, or to do something, not to kiss him again. She was part of this whole thing. And he knocks her down, and uh, I think he, he punches her out, and then uh, bam, and she falls down and hits her head on the wall and f- slides down and hits the floor there, and she's out cold, and... Uh, and then Bond says again, positively shocking. And <laughs> well, come on now. If you if you if you don't if you don't like that, well, God bless you. I'm 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 happy for you. Then you might think Roger Moore was the best one. But you know what? He deserves. God bless him. He was 89, and uh, he died in his big uh, mansion in Switzerland. And, Roger, good luck to you. I hope you have a great, well, a great eternity there, either on a cloud or with another assignment or uh, having a chance to talk about things with 008 or any of the other Bond characters who never quite made it to the end of the movie. But he deserves our, our final tip of the hat. I hope you give him one, too. And Kyle, you think he was the best? Good for you. God bless you. I'm glad you do. But Roger, I think you were great in everything you did. Maybe not the best Bond, but you did a terrific job. And I'll bet you're doing a terrific job right now. And by the Larry Miller Store. That's right, folks. The Larry Miller Store here at the Larry Miller Show. And uh, the address of it, by the way, to get to on your fancy computer is larrymillershow.com slash store. And uh, we have great stuff. Uh, Take a look and buy some. We have wonderful T-shirts, if I do say so myself. We have uh, three of them. The Larry Miller Drinking Society shirt, which is a terrific group to belong to, by the way. There's there's no uh, there's no fees no 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 dues. It by the way it features the famous LMDS logo. That's Larry Miller Drinking Society logo and our semi-secret slogan, "Nominum quid geminis," which is Latin for "You call that a double," which maybe you've wanted to say sometimes in bars when you order a double. And it doesn't look like the drink you wanted. It does, just doesn't look like a double. Maybe the bartender is one of those fellas or one of those women who just pours a double with an exact two shots in it. Well, no, it doesn't look like much. That's that's a single to me, maybe to you too. 
And a lot of times you've wanted to say to a bartender, nominum quid geminus, which again is Latin for, you call that a double? Good t-shirt to get, though, with the, with the LMDS logo. And the new Keep Calm and Larry On shirt. It's, uh, as the colonel believes, and, uh, and he's, he's right. It's not just a mantra for life. It's the motto sensation that's sweeping the nation. <laughs> that's still fun. He's patting himself on the back. That's still fun for me to say. And I'm glad the colonel wrote it. The motto sensation that's sweeping the nation. And uh, finally, show how tough you are. Yeah, not just by being a fan of my show, but with the brand new I Survived Volcano Number 2 and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Shirt. And, ah, oh, that's a good one to have too. For yourself, for gifts, or for both. All shirts, by the way, are printed on demand. And, uh, wow, it sounds like a tough way of saying it, in fact. And so that you, the point is so that you can choose from a variety of colors and they're available in both gentlemen's and ladies' cut t-shirts. So go to LarryMillerShow.com slash store. That's LarryMillerShow.com slash store. I'm awfully glad we have that. We have other things, by the way, we keep planning to put in the store. And, uh, well, one of us is too lazy and stupid to put that together. Okay, it's me. But the point is we're going to get to it. (laughs) Colonel Jeff just said, it's two of us, actually. That's true. But uh, in any case, go to the Larry Miller store and buy a bunch of things you're going to love for the rest of your lives. And uh, that brings me to my favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. Uh, With my favorite bongo drum roll. Both the colonel and I got a good laugh out of this one, and I hope, as always, you do too. And uh, a fellow comes in to rob a bank, and he's got the classic Batman outfit on of uh, sort of a white and black striped criminal shirt and a full, you know, hood mask over his face. And he comes in and he fires his automatic weapon into the ceiling, bam, 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 and gets everyone's attention. He says, all right, this is a bank robbery. Nobody move, you know? And then he says, all right, now he says he's got a big bag there, a big burlap bag, and he and he hands it to one of the tellers and says, you go around right now, you put every dollar you have in every drawer you have right in this bag, do it. And that's when the tellers, oh, 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 sure, and they go around and they get all the money, and, you know, he keeps looking around and turning that big, powerful weapon around at, at everyone there and he, they give him the bag he's all right now you know uh, nobody move and and he backs out and then he goes to turn and goes to go out and one of the security guards come over the guy comes over to stop him which is probably not the smartest thing in the world at that point but the security guard does he goes over and stops him and he grabs him to to you know to capture him and all he grabs really is is the hood, and he he whips the hood off, and sure enough, the security guard and and the robber are looking right at each other now, and and the security guard just goes oh oh oh, and sure enough, the bandit shoots him dead, just goes bam, three shots, ba boom, right right into him and knocks him down dead, and uh, he turns around and he and looks at everyone else, and two of the tellers are looking right at him and they see and they see it too and they see his face too and and he just kills them both ba bam bam ba bam bam and uh, and he and he turns around and everyone there of course immediately looks down at the floor to not make him mad enough to kill them and he says uh, all right anybody else here see my face and there's a few seconds pause and then an an old woman there, just uh, one of the customers, says to him, well, my husband did. He he saw your face. And uh, the guy says, all right, where is he? And she says, oh, he's at home, but I can go get him. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. Uh, Colonel Jeff and I got a good laugh out of that, and I, I hope you did too. 
And as always, pass it along if you like it. And if you laugh, pass it along to your family and loved ones and friends. And, well, we'll have another one for next week. And that brings me to my second favorite part of the show. The Poetry Corner. That guy didn't cough during a bank robbery. That's the kind of thing get you killed, too. But I didn't see your face. But I don't like that cough. Anyway, this is a wonderful poem, folks. It's lovely. It's called Before Vicksburg by George Henry Boker. And uh, Mr. Boker was an American poet and playwright and diplomat, too. And he lived from 1823 to 1890. He's mostly famous for his plays. But, you know, the Civil War, which, of course, he lived through and saw, caused him to focus more on writing poetry for the Union cause. In fact, he in 1864, he wrote a book called Poems of the War. And you know what, folks? Well, the truth is, if they're as good as this one, He could have had two books of them. I hope you like this. It's called Before Vicksburg by George Henry Boker. While Sherman stood beneath the hot test fire that from the lines of Vicksburg gleamed and bombshells tumbled in their smoky gyre and grape shot hissed and case shot screamed, back from the front there came Weeping and sorely lame, the merest child, the youngest face man ever saw in such a fearful place. Stifling his tears, he limped his chief to meet, but when he paused and tottering stood around the circle of his little feet, there spread a circle of bright young blood. Shocked at his doleful case, Sherman cried, Halt! Front face! Who are you? Speak, my gallant boy! A drummer, sir, 55th Illinois. Are you not hit? Oh, that's nothing. Only send some cartridges. Our men are out, and the foe press us. But, my little friend, don't mind me. Did you hear that shout? What if our men be driven? Oh, for the love of heaven, send to my colonel, general, dear. But you... Oh, I shall easily find the rear. I'll see to that, cried Sherman, and a drop angels might envy dimmed his eye as the boy, toiling towards the hill's hard top, turned round and with his shrill child's cry shouted, Oh, don't forget, we'll win the battle yet. But let our soldiers have some more, more cartridges, sir, caliber 54. Well, I hope you were as touched as Colonel Jeff and I were. By golly, George Henry Boker in the Civil War saw that and wrote about it. And I think it's a lovely poem. Good work, Mr. Boker. And as I said, getting your book of Civil War poems is probably a very good idea. And that brings me to my third favorite part of the show. Triple M. M M M. The Magic Movie Moment. Oh, this is a good one, folks. I hope you've seen it and know it and love it. But if you haven't, do. That's always, I suppose, my motto and my advice for the magic movie moment. The movie is called The Sullivans. It's from 1944, still in World War II. And it's a true story. I've seen this movie. It's a very good movie several times and just rereading the synopsis brought tears to my eyes 
They ran down my face in tribute and affection. And the colonel came back from getting another cup of water. And you know, folks, if that's not a magic movie moment to you, I don't think there's one that is. And that's my Triple M today for you. In the Sullivans, it's a true story, and it's about a family named the Sullivans from Waterloo, Iowa, in World War II, and certainly long before it. And it's a true story. They had five sons and a daughter, and the five sons grow up, and one gets married, and they have a baby. And then the family is, well, sitting around having a nice breakfast on December 7th, 1941. And, of course, that was the day of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And they all decided. They said, you know what? We can't let that just go by. And they all decided they're going to enlist in the Navy. And so they can, well get theirs back, and and help win the war. And they do. And it wasn't easy because initially the Navy uh, didn't want to let, well, five brothers, they all wanted to be on the same ship. And still one of the brothers, George, had a chance to, he was drafted, and he wrote to the Navy, to the Department of the Navy, and he said, well, can you please put us all on the same ship? And they did. The Juno, a big battleship, and that ship was hit in battle, and it was going down, and all the, well, all the four brothers got together, and they realized, wait a minute, that Brother George was downstairs, well, in, you know, in in bandages from something else, another battle, and they went down and got him, and uh, he said, no, get out of here, just go, the four of you go. And uh, they said to him, no, George, we all have to go swimming together. And that was their family motto from some of the things in the movies. We all stay together. And folks, Ward Bond is one of the actors and a great actor. And uh, he plays Commander Robinson and he goes to the house in Iowa afterwards. This is, well, this was quite, quite an event. He goes there to tell the uh, the father and mother and and the boy's wife and his son and well and their sister that all five were killed in action and it's a very moving picture folks and as a, a, a fan wrote in about this that I just read if you're not crying by the end of this movie you have no heart and no soul. And I think he may just be right on this one. Please see it if you haven't. The Sullivans from 1944. Sorry, Thomas Mitchell. Oh, boy. Anne Bancroft as the young wife. There's so many terrific folks. And if you have seen it, see it again. You won't be sorry you did. And, well... That's why it also ties into a story I wanted to tell you today, because that's an anniversary to think back on, well, World War II. It's getting farther and farther away, of course, and fewer and fewer veterans are alive with each year passing. But today, folks, in this is May in May twenty fourth. In 1873, the Brooklyn Bridge opened. Now, that might not sound like something so, well, so ma- so enlarged, so mammoth to you, but it really is. 1873, that bridge took 14 years to build. They started in 1869. And, well, the designers... Well, a fellow by the name of Roebling, John Augustus Roebling. And uh, he was born in Germany in 1806 and came to the United States when he was 25. 
and uh, his his family, and he moved to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and he was educated in Berlin as a civil engineer and as an architect, and he started. He became very well known and respected for building suspension bridges, for designing them. And those are bridges, by the way, still that, especially at the time, well, think of it, that's what the Brooklyn Bridge is. It's suspended from gigantic cables that go between one tower and the other. And, well, he and his son, his son John, and they got an apartment in Brooklyn on the Brooklyn side of the East River, right, of course, right where they were going to build the bridge, and they designed it. A thousand men worked on that over 14 years, and hundreds were killed, and that included the Roeblings, because John Augustus, the father, was uh, testing... Just before they started construction in 1869, he just wanted to. He went out in one of their boats, just a little boat, to redo the the statistics on with a compass, and make sure that they were in the right place and doing the right thing and about to start in the right way. And he had there was an accident. His one of his feet got caught between well one boat and another, and it just crushed the toes which is, uh, well, certainly a painful accident. But in those days, in any days, but especially in those days, that could kill you. And it killed him. They took him out and they brought him back to his apartment. And, well, just uh, a week or so later, he died of tetanus, which he got from this. And his son took over all the operation, his son and his son's wife, Emily, and they lived in that apartment, and they started that construction on the Brooklyn Bridge. And, folks, his son got very sick, too, because his son got caisson's disease. That's what they call the caisson is, well, these immense boxes that were wooden, that were, that were built and sunk, taken to the bottom of the East River, and put into the the riverbed there. They were huge. And to work on them, that meant they they had to shovel out all the all the sludge and all the dust and all the dirt and all the rocks from the bottom of the East River. And all the workers well, you could get anything doing that. They didn't know why and they didn't know how. But they would take these carts down and uh, down wires, down cables, go down to the bottom of the East River. And those carts had air that was pumped into them so they could breathe, of course. And the caissons had air pumped into them, too, so the same thing, so they could breathe. And, and uh, all the men there, but what they didn't realize was they didn't know at the time. When they were done with the day's work, well, they would get back into their carts and go back up the cable there. and But boy, you could get the worst headaches and the worst coughing and the worst everything that these workers then would... Well, it took them a few hours to get their wits back. And the same thing happened to young Mr. Roebling. And he got what they called caisson's disease in those days. But we call the bends. You've you've heard that name, I'm sure, but none of us really know what it meant or what it was. The bends. Well, it's deadly. It can kill you. And it really kills everyone it, it attacks. It just destroys everything. The balance, the sense of the, the, how the brain works, the sense of how you even see, how your eyes work, how everything works. And folks... That's what happened to young Mr. Roebling. And after he was gone then, his wife Emily took over management and running the whole company, and she finished the bridge herself. Fourteen years. And you know what? Well, it's quite a thing to realize. Look at a picture. We're going to, uh, well, 
You must know, it's been in many, many movies, but look, right now in your newspaper or on the Internet, there have to be shots of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we're going to try to put in there were some photographs that the colonel says he can put on our website and uh, of the Brooklyn Bridge when it opened in 1873. And, uh, boy, I've been on that bridge many times. Uh, my friends and I used to have a group of, well, some comics you know. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Paul Reiser, Mark Schiff, Mike Kane, God bless him, who's passed on since, and me. And uh, we had a little group called The Funniest Men in the World, which was sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> we weren't out of our minds. But once a year on New Year's Day... Wherever any of us had been working the night before, and especially as our careers grew where we could really work all over the United States and Canada and get a good New Year's Eve job. But then that next day, you still get up at 4 or 5 in the morning to get a plane wherever you were and fly into New York, back to New York. And uh, we would all get together. For brunch, we had a limousine that would pick us all up at our hotels, which was very nice. And that limo would pick us up, and we were all well, showered and shaved and wore nice clothes, wore suits, because we were going. Well, first, we drove around Manhattan for a bit, and we always had a case of champagne that we had gotten for that. And it was nice and cold, and we would all toast ourselves in that limousine with a having made it another year in show business and having grown another year in show business. And you know what? We would toast those glasses and have some, and we'd drive around Manhattan also when Mike Kane, God bless him, passed away. We would drive to a spot where we knew Mike had been and, uh, and had walked uh, when he was very sick at the end there. And uh, in fact, we used to put a banana peel down there and uh, it struck us as a kind of a witty thing to do and then after well a couple of visits to things like that then we went to Brooklyn to the River Cafe which was a very elegant restaurant on the Brooklyn side right on the East River right in the East River and it was always well filled with all sorts of celebrities for New Year's Day and we were there every day we got there same time about one in the afternoon every New Year's Day to the River Cafe. And we would go in there and order another bottle of champagne and we'd have a big fancy breakfast. And uh, <laughs> Seinfeld used to say, yeah, with the $5 oatmeal. But it was all good. Whatever they made, it was just good. And they always gave us a nice table for, well, there were five of us. It used to be six and uh, with Mike. And we would sit there right on the window, look out into the East River, right under the Brooklyn Bridge. And, uh, well, a little to the side of it, too. But we could see Manhattan and the bridge and say, how do you like that? This is really something. And then every year we did the same thing. After our meal and after saying hello to a couple of the folks who were customers there and we all knew and saying goodbye to a couple of the waiters there who always took care of us, who we all knew. And we would go back out and get back into that limo. And the driver would always take us to the stairway, a little kind of a hidden staircase in the concrete foundation blocks of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we'd walk up those stairs right onto the walkway you all know from all the movies. And we would walk across the Brooklyn Bridge every year. And it was beautiful. It could be very, very cold or not so cold. And we could wrap our faces up in scarves or just stroll more. And we never ran across. It was just gorgeous. And we'd be together and we would talk and laugh and talk about the year and just look around. And we'd get to the middle of the bridge and say thank you, say a prayer, and it always was going down. The sun was just going down. I don't know how. We never tried to do this. But we always did it to where the sun was going down. 
just as we got to the height of the Brooklyn Bridge. And we walked across the rest. We'd look out, and we would, people would want to talk and say hello and take a picture. And, well, that was great. And we sure did, too. And uh, then we got to the other side and went about the rest of our New Year's Day in our little group. And uh, sometimes we did we did something different every every year. Once once we went to a porn movie in the Forty Second Street area. That's one of those ideas when you say to five or six guys, "Hey, you want to see? How about this year if we all see a porn movie?" There's not much delay on the response to that. It's just, "Hey, good idea," you know. Okay, sure. And uh, it was. <laughs> Well, that was okay, by the way. It wasn't that was great. It's just, all right, that's something else we did. But that Brooklyn Bridge, folks, meant a lot to us and still does. And I hope it means something to you. 90, by the way, no more than that. That's something else I'm going to bring up to you. But the Brooklyn Bridge from 1873 when it opened. Well, you know what? Find a picture of it and look and realize, how do you like that? Father and son, the the Roblings, designed it and built it. And the younger son's wife, Emily, finished building it and headed the whole company. And she took care of, well, she took care of them and of the bridge. And you know what? There are other numbers to talk about because I mentioned 90-year 90 uh, 90 anniversary. Today, in the same time period... This is the 90th anniversary of Grauman's Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. Now, you all know that building. You've seen it again in many movies. And, you know, they had that's from 1927 it opened up. Sid Grauman, who was uh, a showman, as they used to call some guys back then. I mean, he produced a lot of things. And, uh, boy, he would help a lot of young actors who became stars. And uh, he helped them along, and he really got them, well, hooked up with other agents, and he got them good work, but that was his. Sid Grauman made things like the Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, which is very famous, and downtown he built one called the Million Dollar Theater and uh, in the same time period in the 20s. But what he really was known for and what he, would, what he put his name on was Grauman's Chinese Theater. And he also had another first there. He's the one who invented all the big stars putting their handprints and footprints in the sidewalk. That's how that came about. And uh, Colonel Jeff, if uh, we'll see if he can get those pictures off there and onto our website. There's one there of Sid Grauman. Well, well, how do you like that? With Gene Harlow. That's why I mentioned her before there. Jean Harlow, such a big star and such a, oh, such a beauty. And it's another great picture because it's not only we see Grauman's Chinese Theater in 1927, but there's that shot of Jean Harlow with Sid Grauman, and uh, she's putting her footprints in and smiling, and she's got her hand on his shoulder, and he's smiling too, and everyone's laughing. And you think, how do you like that? Here today, gone tomorrow. But they renamed it something. Somebody bought it. Oh, some company bought it 20 years ago and renamed it the, uh, whatever it was uh, called, the, the AMC Fancy Theater, you know, which is ridiculous. It's just perfectly idiotic, but because it's Grauman's. And they they went back to that, which I'm glad of, and which Colonel Jeff was glad about that. We, we, we talked about it before. Now, it was made as Grauman's Chinese Theater, and that's what it should be known as forever. And by the way, I've been there many times. And uh, that, well, I've seen a bunch of movies there with my wife and our kids. And I'm in many movies that premiered there. And that was pretty great, too. Hey, how do you like that? You're coming to the Grauman's Chinese, Chinese Theater for a premiere, and you're in it. Well, that was always been pretty neat. And in fact, the funny thing is, or the weird thing is, 
I never, they would always call. They were very nice, and they'd call. The whole movie company had gotten a, a limousine for you, and they would pick me up they went at my house, which is only, what, uh, five, ten miles from the theater there and uh, here on the mainland. But, you know, I always said, uh, yeah, you know what, I'll just, I'll just drive over. You know, thank you anyway, but it just seemed to me, they said, what do you mean drive? We're going to send the limo for you so you can pull up on the red carpet and get out and and wave to everybody or something. It's a premiere, and everybody's there behind the velvet ropes, and all the fans are there of the, of the, of the movie or the, of the people in the movie, and it's very exciting. So why don't you take... For some reason, I still don't know why, I always thought, well, I just live right there, though. You know, I might as well I'll drive myself, and I'll park in the parking lot, which is a big building on the corner there at uh, Highland and Hollywood. And uh, so I figured I'd, I'd just park there, and I always did that. I would park and just walk down, take the elevator down to street level, and just just walk out and walk right out. And there's the red carpet and that you just walked out onto. And people are still very nice. People wave, hi, you know, and they, I'd wave back. I was happy. I was thrilled. I'm going to Grauman's Chinese Theater and I'm in the movie. And uh, then they always assign you. Funny thing, I just realized... I always had someone waiting there for me by the velvet rope at the start of the red carpet because they knew this idiot is just going to drive himself. And they would always say it was a nice young woman and uh, they worked there for, well, Grauman's Chinese Theater or the, the movie company and and uh, she's got the clipboard there with you on it. And they always say, why didn't you as we walked out there to where the photographers are in the interviews, said, why didn't you? Why don't you take the uh, the limousine? Because that'll drive you right here. And I always <laughs> said the same thing. I uh, I don't know. Well, I, but I just live over there. You know, I figured I'd just drive myself. And they'd have the, the big party afterwards, which was well, you know, right there on Hollywood Boulevard. I don't mean on the street, but they had another place that they that they took over and decorated and had filled with food and stars. And really pretty women who were in gowns. And I mean really pretty. Just, you know, holy mackerel pretty. And they had just, you know, really, well, full-figured women too. And uh, as my dad used to say, God bless her, she's a healthy kid. But you know what? Uh, and then I figured, well, but then I'll just walk across the street again and get my car and just drive home after the party. I, it's, I know it still seems that everyone would say, well, he's out of his mind. But it just seemed like, well, but I live over there. I'll just I'll just take the car, drive down, drive back. But then I said to Colonel Jeff before, they must have seen so many lunatics in show business who do all sorts of things. Yes, I need a limo, but also one for my elephant. Okay, fine. You know, they. God knows what these folks must have dealt with. But in any case, you know what? I've been in pictures that premiered at the Egyptian Theater, too. And I go to those opening parties, and I went to the interviews of, uh, sure, everything at Grauman's Chinese, which is, by the way, if it's a big Hollywood movie, you know, they have all these big interviewers there about 15 feet apart as you walk along the red carpet. And I don't mean just on your level. I mean they're up a couple of feet onto a platform, with a backdrop that, you know, looks like a TV show. Well, that's what it is, I guess. You know, that's why it looks like one. But I and I love doing that. I'm, I I like being a good pro. I like being whatever the job is. Would you talk to this guy? Sure, I'll talk to anyone. I'll talk to you. I don't care. I mean, I care very deeply. And I remember last time I, I was talking to Donnie Osmond. I always liked him. He ran a – he was doing interviews on top of this platform – and I always liked him because when he had an, he and Marie had the Donnie and Marie show. And I was on that a bunch of times. It was a TV show. They still gave the best coffee mugs as gifts. I'm serious. And I told him that on one of these interviews. I said, I haven't told you this yet, but I still have. That coffee mug you guys gave out on that show was the best ever. I mean, I still think it's my favorite coffee cup, which he didn't really need to hear. He's a very nice guy, but, you know. 
the, the, your guide with the clipboard is trying to say, okay, if you wrap it up, Julia Roberts is right behind you, and they'd like to talk to her. Okay? Is that so? Finish talking about the coffee mug and let's go. But we did, and you know what, folks? It makes you think when you see a picture of Grauman's Chinese Theater. It does make you think. Colonel Jeff and I both said the same thing. I'm glad they renamed renamed it Grauman's, because that's what it is. And that fellow Sid, well, and Gene Harlow and all the stars who have their handprints and footprints there, they've all passed on now. But it's wonderful to know that I see them again at that theater in that sidewalk. And, well... You can see them, too. If you come out here, come see Grauman's Chinese Theater. Yes, you'll have to, you know, walk past a bunch of folks dressed as Batman and Darth Vader. You know, they do that. They want to take pictures with you. And, uh, you know, that's they sell pictures. They'll take one with you. You can take one with them. And they'll develop it right there, right away, instantly. And then you give them 10 bucks or 20 bucks, whatever it is, for it. And... uh not that you'll love that, but sure, why not? It's another, why not? Well, those folks are making a living, too, so they dress up as, well, same thing, Superman or Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman can sometimes be, well, fantastic. But you know what? Go there. Go to Grauman's. And you can think the same thing, too. You'll know, and I know, that Roger Moore was a great guy. And he's passed on now, too. And as always, though, you and I know the same things. Homer is Homer, and Pluto is a planet. So remember, folks, as always... If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to, and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. So remember that. No matter whose footprints you're looking at, we'll see you here next time.